All right, so yesterday I spent some time with our Restore community uh, downtown under the bridge at I-35 doing some ministry there, uh, serving some of the homeless community. Some of you guys were there. Uh, and I had, the reason I tell you that is not because I think I'm super cool for that, but, but because I got to spend about 30 minutes talking uh, to a gentleman uh, under the bridge, and his, his name was G.R. Runnels. And as he was, uh, he was a talker. I mean, he just, I really, all I did was nod the entire time. But um, he was talking about uh, his story and who he was. And he, apparently he had only been in Austin for uh, 48 hours, he said. And his goal was to come here and to get into the, um, to the county clerk's office and, the, and go to the Capitol and go to all these offices, wherever he has to go, because his goal was to prove, okay, that he was a fifth generation, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, his grandpa, five generations ago, was the governor of the state of Texas, to which he had some land rights in the state of Texas, hundreds and then thousands of acres that for one reason or another he believed uh, was willed to five generations later that he was supposed to get. So here is this man who obviously had been wearing the same clothes he was in and sleeping in the same clothes he was in for weeks, if not months, dirty, unshaven. Uh, his, his, honestly, his teeth were rotting. Um, he uh, did not look like he had his senses about him uh, very much at all. He was, he was homeless. And he's talking about this, and he was just so excited about it. And he was so excited about it, and he, um, he reached for his backpack, and he ripped out all these documents. And he says, you might think I'm kidding you, but look at these. And the man had spent hours upon hours upon hours doing research and studying and had document after document underlined and highlighted, proving who he was, where the properties were, what it should look like. And he explained this story on what it was going to take in order for him, this man living under the bridge as a homeless man in downtown Austin, to prove he was the great-grandson, five times removed great-grandson of the governor of Texas and his birthright was worth millions. His only hope was completely wrapped in this dream that one day he could prove who he was. And he had positioned his entire life around that pursuit. He said, man, me right now, I don't care where I live. I don't care what I do. All I'm doing is this. And it was very evident in how he talked and his excitement and his passion that this was all he was about. His hope was tied directly to his dream of what his life could one day look like. We've been in the book of Acts for a couple months now as we've been studying, and we've spent the last three weeks specifically in Acts 2, verse 42 through uh, 47. And our heart has been to grasp, um, hopefully, what the church looked like in its earliest form, which many believe in its purest, most undefiled form, right after Pentecost, at the first gathering of the church, with the hope with the hope that we might become the church God wants us to be. And if you've been around AMC at all, you know that, if you've been around the world at all, you know there's a lot of critics of the church today, both inside and outside the church. I mean, 
we're critics. We're critics of ourselves, and, and other people are critics of ourselves. And so our challenge from the beginning has, has been to pe- be a people uh, whose desire is to stop complaining, as we've said, complaining about the church that we see, and, and starts becoming the church that we dream of. Our hope is tied to this dream. So here's a question for, for each of us today. What does the church you dream of look like? I have a, I have a dream. What, it, what is a church, this dream church to you, look like? Think about that for a second. Number them in order if you want. Maybe just your top five. Get them in your head. The things, and, and I think about if I was asked to do a list like that, I would give you all the answers that you, I would think you'd want to hear, and then there would be the answers that are probably some of the real answers as well, you know? Like we might, well, you know, let's do this. What, what are, yell out some of the characteristics of your dream church. What are they? Authentic. Equal. Welcoming. Great. What else? Pardon me, one. Helpful. Honest. Spirit-filled. Inspiring. United. What do we dream of? Keep going. Healing. Relational. Acceptance. Keep going. What does your dream church look like? And then what about, I want really good worship. And I'd like really good teaching. And I'd like someplace safe for my kid to go. And I'd like this and I'd like that. They're, those are all real things too, right? Can we have just both? Can we have all those? Just if we're honest, the perfect, I'm talking about wheels off, perfect church. I was thinking about this homeless man that we spent some time with yesterday. I was thinking about him last night because I was just conflicted. I, I'm glad he didn't stop talking because I, I wouldn't really know what to say back to him. I'd probably say something dumb. And, and I was thinking about it last night. And it was also the same thought that I woke up with this, this, this morning, and, and, and this was it. As he was thinking about this hope for this better life, this dream, here's what came to my heart, that regardless who he really is and what he hopes he is entitled to, there is a process. We know this, right? There is a process, there is a requirement, and there is an authority that will determine whether or not his hope remains a dream or becomes a reality. Do you agree with that? I think he's an underdog. I'm thinking what judge is going to listen to him and take him seriously? That there is this process and there's this thing, and more than anything, there is this authority that will determine whether his hope remains a dream or becomes a reality. And here is a thought that I want to give you. The only way our dream church will be all that we hope for is if what we hope for is in line with Christ's dream for his church. As Matthew would say, are you with me? Does that make sense to you? See, we have a hope. We have a dream for our church. And many of those things are in line probably with what God might want. And I think those are, are amazingly great things. But the, the only way our dream church, as we think it should look like, okay, is going to be the hope that we hope for, be all that we hope for, 
okay, is if what we are really hoping for is what Christ dreams of for his church. In other words, we all have a dream, we all have an idea, we all have hopes, and unless our dream aligns with Christ's dream, it doesn't really matter what we want. That sounds so harsh, but it's true. That's why it's so important as we look into God's word, as we think about who we are as a church and how we form as a body and what we spend our time doing and not doing and where we spend our money and where we don't spend our money and all of these things, it's so important for us to try and gain a better understanding for what God desires, what his dreams are for his bride. That's why we're studying Acts 2, verse 42 through 47 and taking three to four weeks at doing it because that is our hope. We've discussed in the past the danger, as we were going through the book of John, we've discussed the danger of having a man-centric theology, a a theology that starts and ends with us, because our theology and our our understanding, our doctrine, our our study of God should be God-centric. It should recognize that he is the sovereign power, not us, okay? That it's dangerous when our theology is man-centric. It needs to be God-centric, because when it's man-centric, it will eventually fall in on itself, when things happen that we don't understand, it falls in on ourselves because we're man. When things seem more complicated and we want to explain it, it falls in, our, in on ourselves because we have the, the mind of a man. And the Bible says that God's foolishness is wiser than our wisdom. It, in the same way that we cannot have a man-centric theology, we should not have a man-centric ecclesiology, which means basically the way we do church and why we do it. And what it's really about. It has to be Christ-centered. And when that happens, I believe with all my heart that it would, will be all that every one of us hope and dream for. You believe that? So here's the big, big idea. We've been given the big idea. Here's kind of the summary for, the, for all five of the verses we've looked at from the First week through what Matthew taught and then into this week since the first point on your outline. Just write these thoughts down. The early church survived and thrived. Remember this? The early church uh, uh, survived and thrived through the right attitude, first of all. Remember we talked about the right attitude on perseverance, the right attitude on doctrine, not just to know but to apply it, and the right attitude on community. Okay, the early church survived and thrived through the right attitude, not just the right church model. Verse 42. It was an attitude of respect for God. Matthew did an incredible job last week on teaching this scripture that says they were in awe, that they had this fear which was a respect and understanding, a a fear of God to the point where they had to change who they were. Okay, it was an attitude of respect for God, verse 43, and concern for one another. This was their attitude, verse 42, 44, 45, 46, 47, and about 3,000 other scriptures throughout the Bible that resulted in what we're going to look at today in finding true joy and the favor of God in all the people. So let's read this scripture. Starting at 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and it's a big and, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe, 
And many wonders and miraculous signs, which Matthew conveyed to us, that means evidences. Many miraculous signs, evidences of God's existence were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions of good they gave to anyone as he had in need. And we're looking at verse 46 and 47 today. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They, they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, verse 47, and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, it's funny. Whenever I've read this scripture before, and it says that every day they continued meeting together, I'm like, whoa, no way. I mean, I got this and this and that and this and whatever. Every day, I just can't. And they, they sold everything and gave, no, whoa. That dude's lazy. He's not getting what I got. And we instantly start thinking, well, and we begin to reason it away. Well, this isn't applicable today. It's a different culture. It's a different thing. This isn't what it's talking about. And so all of a sudden, we take the scripture and we say, this is irrelevant to me. Have you done that? I have. I've done it. I've thought, well, that was that time. They were in persecution. They were underground. You know, they were being martyred and they were this and that. They had to just to survive. And the problem is, well, the good news is, is that it is pretty contextual for the time, okay? The other good news is, is not necessarily all that the scripture is saying here. So we're going we're gonna to dig into it a little bit and show you what, what it's saying here. But the good thing is, is there are still lessons to be learned about the heart behind what was going on here. And in order to see it, we need to find the right emphasis of what Christ really expects from us, and what Christ really desires out of his bride. Is it that Christ says, my perfect bride will meet for Sunday school, for services, for training union, for prayer meeting, for women's Bible study and men's Bible study, plus community group, plus evangelism training, plus blah, 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 blah. All these things are good things in themselves, but are they things that Jesus here is saying since we met in, in the homes every day? That's exactly what we have to do. It's not what the heart of this scripture is. What does Christ really expect of us found in these scriptures? Well, I want to give you three things. Go ahead and write them down in advance. The first one is constant unison. The second is consistent diversity. Well, I'll explain it. And the third one is common concern. So let's look at this scripture real quick. Pick it apart if we can to gain a little bit more understanding of what we're talking about. Verse 46 says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Underline that that phrase, those four words, every day they continued. Underline that in your outline or maybe in your Bible. If you were to translate these four words directly, it would say continued daily in one accord. All right, not talking about a Honda. We're talking about, uh, it, it means they continued daily in one accord, literally meaning as they were going. And it's the same tense of the Great Commission where Jesus said, go and make disciples. He's not saying just go. He's saying as you are going, as you are living, as you are living out, seeking out the kingdom in your life, as you are seeking to be my children, as you're going, do these things. So it's saying, it's not saying 
Every single day, they had to do this or God would strike them with a lightning bolt. What it's saying is that they were continuing daily in one accord. In their minds, they were together in what they were seeking and what they were doing. Does anybody have a New American Standard? Would you read that scripture? What does it say? Instead of every day they continued? It's talking about this journey. The emphasis on the constant unison, not just the daily ritual. I think, this may be a side note, but I think it's interesting how our attitude is, how, how much do we have to meet instead of how much do we want to or how much could we or whatever it may be. But it's still a tangent here because the emphasis is not on the, the meeting itself and how often, but it's on the unison of being in one accord. And we need to set our expectations right when we think about what this unison means together, okay? Because I've fallen victim of this thought where I'm in a Bible study or I'm in a, I'm in a church or I'm in something and something doesn't go the way I might want it to go. And I'm not, I really mean this, I have felt this way. I think all of us have felt this way. And, and, and I begin to go, dang it, maybe it's not, well, oh well, maybe next time, you know? If you've been from different churches and you've tried different things and you're looking for all these different things, I think sometimes we have to set our expectations in in certain ways to know what we are going to expect. So let me explain that constant unison does not mean constant perfection. All right? It doesn't mean perfection at all. In fact, let me give you an example that probably every one of us can relate with as we think about this early church, okay? I believe the early church was this big, beautiful, dysfunctional family. Anybody relate with that? (laughs) I, I really do. I think it was this big, beautiful, dysfunctional family. Now, don't think I'm teaching heresy now. It's like, no, it was the most amazing thing. I think there was beauty in their diversity, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that even in that, that they were unified. Sometimes my kids act like they have no brain. Love you, Gaff, but you, sometimes, and I love them to death. It, it, our families can do things that we would never forgive a friend for. And yet they're still our family and we still love them. And we still want our best. We would do things for our family we would never do for a stranger or even a close friend because they're our flesh and blood. Because they're our family. As dysfunctional as it may be. See, here's why I think they were dysfunctional. They were all new to this. Brand new. Think about we're a year and three months old, something like that. How, I think about how not there we are yet. They were, this was bread. The new covenant was a new idea. And they were coming from all walks of life and all tribes and everything. They were coming together under this banner. And, and it was, they were all together now. And they had to live out this new faith inspired by the Spirit. But they were all rookies at this. I think it, was, it would be kind of like going and watching a four-year-old soccer game. Have you ever done that? They're just running all around together, running out of bounds, kicking it in the wrong net. The ball's loose and they're just all on it. Nobody's in position. They're just going full steam. But have you ever seen them make a goal? It's awesome. Parents are crying. 
kids just, they're celebrating so much that the other team goes down and scores. It's just crazy. It's out of control. But it's beautiful. And here's the deal. As we learn from history, we never really got there. <laughs> we just kind of keep tripping up on ourselves and redefining ourselves and all this kind of stuff. And so if this expectation is going to be that we are going to be this perfect uh, picture family that's not a little jacked up or a lot of jacked up or whatever, we're going to be disappointed. But it should never break our continuance together in one accord. They were constantly gracious with one another. They were constantly concerned about what was going on in this bigger mission. Constant unison in verse 46. Second part in verse 46 gives us this consistent diversity. Now, I mean that. Consistent, diverse. So it's kind of an oxymoron, but consistent in that it was always happening. And diversity has many definitions. I mean, we could think of diversity whether it's... um, uh, um, different social classes or ethnic uh, uh, backgrounds, what, what different faith, denominational backgrounds, so you can think of that kind of diversity. But um, more so what I, what I want to use this word for is that it means many things, okay? And that I think they were able to celebrate many things. And that they were able to look, okay, um, and, and at what was going on and what needed to be accomplished, and they realized it wasn't going to just all of it happen through just one thing. It just, it just wasn't going to. All right, and I think we have to have an understanding of and a, and a willingness for some diversity in order for us to understand the, the beauty of, of the church. See, the emphasis um, was on, in this scripture was on the diversity of the form, specifically on location and elements. Did you catch uh, what the scripture was saying? Let's see, where, 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 where is it? They continue to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. There were different things going on, and here's what I, th- why I think this is important, because there's a natural fruit that happens in each one of those environments. Have you noticed that? There is something that happens naturally in a small group or in a living room or in just a men's time together or women's time together, or there's something that happens there that doesn't happen here corporately. And in the same way, we have the opportunity to come together corporately and things happen here that can't happen in, on that level. There are things that are natural fruit uh, from, uh, from those environments, whether that is teaching, fellowship, communion with God, worship. Okay, the key is understanding that there's a natural place for these things and the goal then is not the gathering itself, but it's the thing that happens because of that gathering. That the spirit might come in to a place where people are gathered together to worship God because he is awesome. All right? And he might move in you. That you might just give back what you have. That God might be glorified. Okay? The goal is is that edification. All right? That worship. That commonality. And then that thing that happens in community. We don't just gather for the sake of community. We gather together because of what happens in that community because lives are changed and because you're able to have those relationships that you're craving for and that you have to have or you will die. You will just wither up spiritually and you will die if you don't have those. So the goal is not check the box, I did my midweek Bible study, I'm good to go God. There's a reason for it. 
All right? There's a reason for mission. Because when we gather together just for the sake of community, it's funny how it doesn't happen. But we are wired in such a way. When we gather on mission together, you ever notice how when you're on mission with someone, how much closer you get with them? How it breaks the ice and you're just, you ever gone on a mission trip and come back with new best friends or people you want to hang out with all, all the time? When you're in something together, that forms. And the goal are those things, not the element or the location or the place itself. But it's healthy to have those. And so they had diverse gatherings. And they did different things. Now, there were elements they did, like communion and enjoying a meal together, something you would only do Uh, with someone maybe that you're close with, but this was something that they celebrated and was a part of who they were. And here's uh, what I believe, and and I'm going to put it down into four quick thoughts, and it's bigger than this, but this is why I believe that if all we do is corporate worship, we will not realize the dream. If all we do is small groups, we will not realize the dream. If all we do is Bible study, we will not realize the dream. If all we do is, is serve the poor, it's all we do, we will not realize the dream. Every one of those are things we need to be about. But I think it's the fact that they come together. As we come together, and we do that, that the church becomes the church we dream of. All right? And here's the key of that. This is true both corporately together as we structure, as we organize as a church, but then also individually. We could formally have a certain structure as a church that just knocks your socks off. It's the best thing you could ever dream of. But if we don't do it individually, it doesn't matter. All right? And no one can make you do that. <laughs> we have to set our expectations, right? I was at Galaxy Cafe this morning kind of thinking through the sermon. I was grabbing some coffee and a guy walks by outside. I was at one of the outside tables and he walks by and he has this cup. And he walks by and he, I mean, he was, okay. I don't know what his deal was, but he was, and he's, he's approaching the trash can and he's obviously going to put this cup in the trash can. And I'm thinking he's going to go over and set it in and do whatever. And he walks by like this and he just goes, <clears throat> and he throws it at it. And so the cup, which was three quarters full of something, hits the very side of the trash can and it just explodes all over him. And he just starts cussing and he kicks the trash can. And, and I literally sat there and I'm thinking, what a moron. And this is what came into my mind. What did he expect to happen? You got it? What do we expect to happen? Well, I think many times where we struggle as, as humanoids, <laughs> whatever that is, is that um, we really expect the kingdom to break through in our life and us not do what Jesus said it would take. And then we get mad at God when it doesn't happen. And then we get mad at the church. And we get mad at other Christians. And explain this to me. Um, and I don't know how to explain that to you without stepping on some toes a little bit. And to say, hey, this is what I do too. Sorry. Um, 
I wrote on Facebook, because I like Facebook, just that I, I feel like I had kind of a breakthrough. Um, and I think that's it for me, is that I, I just hope that we're a place, that we're a church, that we just all admit yeah, these are things that Jesus said we'd benefit from, that, that would be a part of a really good church. And if, we don't, if we're not willing, as Hugh Halter said, if you're not willing to come die with me, <laughs> if we're not willing to die together for this, those of you who are searching, you, you get a, you're, you're fine. Just tag along and just find out what's going on. Uh, we love you. We want you to be along for the ride. But um, it's not going to be all you hope for if your heart and your dream is not on what Christ hoped for, for the church. Is that fair? All right, maybe I should just close there. All right, and the last one of that is common concern. This is a theme that's redundant throughout Acts 2, redundant as redundant can be. Um, I think the reason for that is because we just don't get it. <laughs> Our concern for one another because we're so selfish. Um, this scripture here says um, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Underline sincere hearts. That's from a compound of two things. One is a negative participle, and the other is the word philos, which means a stone stubbing the foot. Okay? So it's saying it's the opposite of a stone stubbing a foot. So they came together with these sincere hearts. So what it's saying, okay, is it's the opposite of the stubbing. So it's talking about smoothness. The opposite of rough or stubbing or tripping is smooth. So it's saying they came together with sincere hearts a desire, okay, to add to the smoothness of what was going on. And I think that's a key part of the church that's dying on so many street corners is this desire for her members, for her people, for the church, for the bride of Christ to be more of an encouragement and to create smoothness in the mission of what God has, has given them, okay? The emphasis is on the sincere hearts. So the question came to me, do we add smoothness or not? That's the, number three is the common concern. The emphasis is constant unison, consistent diversity, and a common concern. For one another. And then you have the results. And I'm just going to give you these. The results. I almost called this benefits. But I just I struggle with that. Here's why. So many people, uh, you push the prosperity gospel thing. Like God wants you to be rich. Ah, God really doesn't care if you're rich. Uh, he's not impressed with our money. He doesn't need, he doesn't need us to be, you know, have everything in the world. Uh, you know, sometimes it takes a really tough thing in our life to get us. He wants us to love him like crazy. And be concerned for for other people, okay? And so sometimes I spiral down and I don't want to talk about blessing and benefit because I think we like to jump on that and go, good, then I'm good, <laughs> you know? Um, but I think we need to. I think this scripture gives us permission to say, okay, wait a minute. God is provider. God is giver. He gives us grace. He, he, he's so amazing. And he offers us this life and he offers us this thing that we can't make up on our own. We can't fake it. And we need to celebrate that. And here's something that I was convicted about this week. When we don't celebrate or when we don't find joy in what God is doing in our life, Paul or uh, James told us to consider joy even in trials. When we don't do that, here's what we do. We rob God of the worship he deserves. Because he is provider. 
So if we don't express worship or thanksgiving or joy for what he has done, we are not worshiping him for who he is. I, it's like someone giving you a gift and you never say thank you or you never use it or you never put it on or you whatever. And we think, we think, well, you know, just tough, you know, it's a tough road being a Christian and all this. And, and it can be, okay? But when we don't acknowledge the great benefit that comes with being a believer, we rob God the worship he deserves for being provider. All right? So let's think about this result, this benefit. Verse, uh, the last part of it, okay? They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These are, these are awesome things that were going on here. They, verse 42 said that they devoted themselves to the fellowship, the koinonia. Remember, it had three elements, participation, distribution, and benefaction, this benefit, when we devote ourselves to these things, as the scripture says, our benefit will be, first of all, that we will have valued community. We will value community. And this is an important thing because for most of my life, I did not value Christian community. It was always a discipline for me. I had to go to Wednesday night community group so I can make Jesus happy. When our attitude is on these things that we have discussed for the last three or four weeks, you will begin to find true value in those relationships. So if you don't have them, work backwards, and you might see why. All right? We will have valued community. It's the sum of verse 6. Okay, the second thing scripture says is increasing favor. I was always afraid growing up to be a committed Christian because I thought the opposite would happen. That everyone would look at me and think, oh, what a big dork, you know? I I know businessmen who struggle with telling people they're Christians because they're afraid they won't be taken serious in the professional world. And yet scripture after scripture after scripture tells us if we really live a life which resembles who Christ is, not our cheap imitation of it, you know, that we'll find favor. You're going to have persecution, but you'll find favor with God and man. Scripture says it right here, increasing favor. And then the third thing I believe is an appealing life. I mean, I've gone through evangelism explosion training where we had to go out on Sunday night and knock on people's doors and tell them about Jesus, and I hated it. Hated it. I'm like, these people do not want me in a living room. He's going to go. <clears throat> Check the box, Jesus. Thank you. Um, but it's just a really cool thing when you experience this freedom and you begin to grow. And let me tell you something, I don't think any of us are there. It's this journey. I think the second you get on the journey, you begin to experience this fruit from it. Where you just let go and you give yourself permission and you live it and you just seek out God's ways. All right? That it becomes appealing to others. Here's why. I think they will see that joy in your life. They're going to see something in your life that they need, that they want. They're going to see it. And I believe that the Lord will add to the number 
of the kingdom through that. I believe that with all my heart, there's a time when we sit down and we just say, hey, I'm concerned. I want to tell you about Jesus. And there are other times where we just live our life as Christ followers, true Christ followers, and God will bring people to him through that. And what I really like is that word that it says many were saved is the same word we saw in John 5, I believe, when Jesus talked to the man at the Sheepgate pool and he said, do you want to be healed? The word was, do you want to be made whole? This is the same word. Do you want to be saved? That many were saved, many were made whole. Amazing, amazing promise. When we are made whole, joy will be the fruit. And that's good news. All right. Read these scriptures about joy. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord, Nehemiah says. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Deuteronomy says, be joyful at your feast. Proverbs 10 says, the fear of the Lord adds length to life. Matthew talked about that last week. And the prospect of the righteous is joy. Our prospect is joy. James 1 reminds us, consider it pure joy. This is hard, but consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? It goes on to say, because you know. I, I saw that today for the first time. It says, you know. I do know. I just forget. <laughs> because you know that the testing of your faith develops, develops perseverance, and perseverance will finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So let's celebrate for a moment and consider what we see in Acts 2. Okay, I'm going to work through verse 42 through 46 and with some summaries. First, they were devoted to instruction for the purpose of application, verse 42. Everyone was fearful of the reality and the condition of their soul, verse 43. So everyone decided that together they would mend what was defiled in their religion, verse 44. And it started with making sure everyone's needs were met, verse 45. And it continued as a journey everywhere, in the temple, in the homes, on their own personal road to Emmaus. And it was a journey of joy, mutual edification, and encouragement. Verse 46. That's a picture of the church I believe that Jesus dreamed of. Let's pray.